Skrajinski. Skrajinski. Dobre, dobre, dobre. Privit, laskavo, prasimo, episod visim, Lingoholikos podcast. Mene zvate Ian. My name is Ian. And we are here for episode 8. We're zooming you here. So today we got a special guest. It's a dear friend of mine, a guy that I've known for 10 years here almost since the University of Saskatchewan when me and him were international studies uh, seminar students. So today's guest, we got Lee Rini. Lee, are you there? How's it going, Ian? It's nice to chat with you again. Jak sprawy, Lee? Vse bude dobre tut. Vse dobre. Duže dobre, tak, tak. Okay. Um, I zaraz, uh, let's go around, duže dobre. Sto visoki. Sto visoki. Čo? Okay, I'm going to go around the horn. I'm going to go around the horn in English here. Anliskuju, budlaska. All right, we're going around the Zoom horn to Kodo. Litkovi, pan Litkovi. Jak sprave, how are you, dude? Privet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know that we. I only know like. Harasho, you say harasho. Harasho, harasho, harasho. Yeah. Uh, so for about like half an hour before we we met up just now, I was. Uh, so Ian requested Marcus and I to look up a bit of Russian. Yeah. And not Ukrainian, and I want to ask why, Ian. Okay. Well, I'm going to throw the wide Lee because in Ukraine, sure. you can't really talk about Ukrainian and Russian without. Yeah, but, uh, you can't, you can't speak, you can't speak about the Ukrainian language without speaking about the Russian language. Yeah. Uh, it's intertwined, right? Like uh, you can't live in Ukraine without Russian language. Right. Uh, not, not that you need to speak Russian language, but uh you know, the, the music you listen to will be in Ukrainian and in Russian. The movies you watch will be in Ukrainian and in Russian and in English uh, and other languages. But uh, everybody in this country is fluently bilingual. And you will find throughout this entire podcast that we specifically relate Ukrainian language to Russian language. Uh, because you really don't have Ukrainian without Russian. They're, they're not the same thing. Oh. But they they coexist and they kind of uh, need each other. Yeah, but they're oh. very similar, though. Uh, yeah, but Ukrainian is also it's, it's actually been closer to Belarusian, uh, and it's also very close to Polish. So it's kind of in between Polish and Russian, which, if you look at a map, makes really? some sense. Mm-hmm. But uh, so no, it's not just close to Russian. It's also close to Polish. It's just the language that's in this part of the region yeah the the eastern slavic sort of a mix or in between yeah it's an eastern slavic language for sure uh i can understand based on what i speak in ukrainian which would be i don't know 75 percent somewhere in that area i understand about 20 percent of russian just without even learning russian so i get the basics but i also understand a lot of czech a lot of polish a lot of serbian uh, so once you speak the Slavic language, once you read the Slavic, the Cyrillic alphabet, uh, you can, you can get through the basics like numbers and, uh, foods 
at a restaurant. Uh, they're, they're more or less molecule, mleko, you know, like which is milk. Uh, they're very similar words, odin, odin, you know, like they're, so you, you don't need to have the accent to understand what's being said in other Slavic countries. Right. Slavic so language countries. So it's a little bit like Romance languages then. Like I was Italian just going to say that. Spanish. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, Portuguese. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So, okay. Well, a couple of reasons. Same language family. Yeah. Same language family. So big reason I wanted to have Leon for the show today. Um, so for me, Ukrainian was a big deal. Arguably, I'd say like um, our last guest, Azrin, remember when we asked him, what's your favorite language in the show? And what he, he said? He said French? the one, no, no. He said the one I'm working on currently was his favorite language, which like that made more sense to me after I thought about it because from like when I was like to that late 2013 to 2017, when I was going full bore with Ukrainian and it was like my main focus, the languages, it was definitely my favorite language because it was something I was striving for all the time. And for me, uh, like I did Spanish and then French and then Ukrainian was the next like logical language to take on for me because part of my heritage, I am half Ukrainian, like all of my mom's side's Ukrainian and also Ukrainian just being Slavic and kind of a different like I'd say more out there of a challenge for a language speaker than the romance languages. So it was like, okay, like I did Spanish, I did French, let's take on Ukrainian. And then not only that, so like kind of my side of it, but then Lee. Um, so Lee, if you just talk a little bit about your life in Ukraine, you've been there. Well, when did you first go to Ukraine? Like what's your, talk about a little bit about your history, your relationship with the country. And you've been living there full time since 2012, correct? Uh, more or less. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, since yeah. 2012. I've been traveling to the region since 2001, so about 19 years, which this country is 27, so... Right, since independence. So, for much of its modern history, I've been traveling in and out of Ukraine, and I have a pretty pretty good understanding of the country. I came out here on an exchange program first, uh, Canada World Youth, uh, which is a very big program in Canada, uh, fantastic, wonderful program. Uh, and most people end up moving to Canada, but some of us do end up moving to the countries that we uh, we were based in, and that that's happened with me. Uh, and yeah, I you know I was based in Western Ukraine, which is a very Ukrainian language area. And when I was out there, I had the decision to make, like every foreigner that comes to Ukraine, and uh, even today on expat groups on Facebook, when somebody's moving to Ukraine, they ask the question to expats out here, well, what language should I learn? Like, do I need to learn Ukrainian or can I learn Russian? Because people still think that Russian will be more, could more use useful. it in another country, which they'll never travel to, but they still think that, that's the mentality. That's what they think because, oh, I might travel to Russia or, you know, Kazakhstan or Belarus, the other countries that speak Russian, right? Uh, and of course they never do. And uh, we'll get into that a little bit later in, in the show. But uh, I was based in Western Ukraine and I was young and I idealistic. And so I felt that I should learn the language of the country that I was in. So I made the effort to learn Ukrainian. And uh, that's turned out to be the right decision in so many different aspects. First of all, uh, coming from Saskatchewan with a large Ukrainian diaspora community, uh, learning Ukrainian language 
develop ties with the diaspora community that that I didn't have before. I ended up working for the Ukrainian Canadian Congress there. Uh, I ended up doing some Ukrainian dancing in Saskatoon, uh, a number of other connections out there. But, uh, uh, you know, I think we'll talk about it a little bit later as well. But after the year of Maidan in Ukraine, uh, language, the language norms in Ukraine changed fundamentally. And being a Ukrainian speaker out here right now, a Ukrainian speaker that does not speak Russian, uh, makes me very popular among the Ukrainian community and, again, <laughs> provides me far more opportunities than I would have if I did not speak Ukrainian. So, Lee, I have a question. Where exactly are you right now? So, right now I'm in Kiev. Uh, I am a student at the uh, Tarashevchenko National University in the Department of uh, the Institute of International Relations, where I'm finishing my master's degree in international relations. Who's Tarashevchenko? Uh, Who's Tarash Shevchenko? <laughs> is like the Wayne Gretzky of Ukraine. He's the oh, yeah. single most famous person. He's a poet from the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, and he his poems were in Ukrainian language. And he's a hero. He's on the money out here. Uh, he's on T-shirts. Uh, there's actually a, a film coming out later this year called Tarashevchenko, The Last Samurai, or something like that, <laughs> and like it looks, it looks really, really cool. It looks like a, I, I don't know, a Kung Fu Hustle, if you know that movie, something along those lines. But uh, Tarashevchenko, everybody knows in Canada. Uh, there's a Tarashevchenko picture in every Ukrainian school. Uh, in fact, the, the Tarashevchenko monument in Lviv, which is where I'm normally based. Uh, that was paid for by by the Canadian diaspora. Uh, and so just to finish answering your question, I, I am based in Kiev right now. I'm living in Kiev. Uh, I'm from Western Ukraine. I was born, I say, that's in quotation marks, in a <laughs> s- small city called Ostrog. That's where I spent my first four years or so in Ukraine. It's a town that's about 9,000 people where the university is not in and about 13,000 people when the university is in. Uh, and then I've been editor of Lviv today, which Lviv is the Western Ukrainian city, be like Vancouver yeah. in Canada. It is the <laughs> super pro-Ukrainian part of the country. It was part of Europe. It was part of Poland until 1939. It was part of uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire until the late 19th century. Uh, it's, it's been under five empires in the last century. So... Um, it's it's a very different city in in than most other places in Ukraine, and that's my my home. That's that's uh, that's where I'm from. But I am living in Kiev, and I am chatting with you right now from Kiev, Ukraine. So so speaking of famous people named Shevchenko, you obviously know Andrei Shevchenko. I do actually. I am uh, known for my sports journalism about here, and Shevchenko. Yep. Right now is the manager of the national football team. And so I actually would have uh, been interviewing him last month. Uh, had quarantine not hit, uh, there was the Euro Championships. No I would have been down in uh, in uh, Bucharest in Romania uh, covering the, the Ukrainian games there. And so, yes, I do know. Uh, I don't, I, you know, I've met him. I, I, <laughs> we don't go for beers. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah. Shevchenko is the modern Shevchenko, the most famous Ukrainian. Yeah. Um, well, almost. There's the Klitschko brothers that are probably still more famous than, Klitschko, than Andrei yep. Shevchenko. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay, cool, so you're, you you used to live in Lviv then? 
Uh, that's still my my home. I'm just in Kiev oh, right now because okay. I'm doing my uh, my my university out here. So, yeah. So, so Lviv, that's where. Okay, so when I went to Ukraine, so that was 2017. So that was part of my. I guess episode three, we talked about the the polyglot gathering. We did the whole episode about it. So the second part of that trip for me was going to meet my Ukrainian family. So learning Ukraine was like purely for like heritage reasons for me and also like an interest for the country. So going there, so I went across Bratislava, Krakow, and then to Lviv. So it was pretty awesome because I was spending four days, like a Thursday to the Sunday, uh, with my Ukrainian family there. And the guy who accompanied me during this entire journey was one of my best friends, the expat Lee, who was kind of like my translator, photographer, companion the whole trip. So uh, cultural I just want to talk yeah. a little bit about, because <laughs> with language learning, okay, there's, we talk about the different levels that we have, the different things we can reach, but really I think it's some of the experiences and the adventures that we can have. So these four days in Lviv, so this Western city in Ukraine that I had with Lee turned out to be like probably four of the craziest days of my life. So, uh, Lee was there uh, with me. So Lee, do you just want to talk about, so we'll go through some stories, boys. Stories. Sure. Um, so I took the bus from Krakow like late Wednesday night or whatever. So it was like, I think it was like a nine hour bus ride. Well, that's across. because that's because you spent three or four hours at the border. It's actually like a 200 kilometers between this. It's, it's not that far, but right. there's a really long wait at the border. Okay, yeah, but the border wasn't too bad because you've probably been across that border way the, more than the me. borders. The border is much better coming from Poland into Ukraine than going from Ukraine into Poland because you're gotcha. entering the EU. I uh, no, it's because the there's EU. so much there's so much uh, smuggling that goes on in Ukraine. So when you get a, on a bus. They, they always tear it apart. And they find a whole bunch of cigarettes and other sort of contraband. Yeah, but you said going into the EU is, is yeah, more... Yeah, so when you go from Ukraine into Poland, they, they bring in all kinds of contraband, primarily cigarettes, but other alcohol, other sorts of stuff. And uh, and I remember I, I was on the bus once and I asked the bus driver because they find all the stuff, right? I'm like, like why do you do it? They always find it. And they're like, oh, they only get about half. Lose <laughs> <laughs> half the contraband? Yeah, they only get half. Yeah, so th- they do it because, you know, the Poles get half. And they I'm sure the Poles probably allow half of it to happen. Uh, Poland is rather reliant on Ukrainian labor right now. There's, uh, uh, I will let you know that Poland is the biggest supporter of Ukraine in the world, more than Canada, more than any other country in the world. Poland is a massive supporter of modern Ukraine. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Go Poland. Poland So what do you, so what happens when you get to the border? What do you, you have to go out and they just check everything or. So from Ukraine to Poland, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. If you go by bus, I mean, there's different ways to get across, but if you go by bus, uh, yeah, you get to the border, uh, you wait in line. There's usually with a bus, there's, you don't have to wait in the you know 150 car lineup. You go into the bus lineup. There's usually I don't know four or five buses in front of you. Uh, sometimes it could take hours. I mean I I spent eight or nine hours at the border there one time, but sometimes it takes you know two or three hours, so it's not so bad. But uh, yeah, everybody gets pulled off the bus. Well, you go through the Ukrainian customs first, which essentially they make sure that 
like for me, they make sure that I'm still legal in Ukraine, that I didn't overstay my time. I don't have to pay any fines, that sort of thing. So they just make sure everybody's legal to get to Poland, they're legal to exit Ukraine, and then you go through. The Ukrainian border guards don't look at the bus at all. Then you move up to the Polish border guards, everybody gets off the bus, you hand in your passports, uh, they go through the passports, and then, you know, uh, they check your bags. Uh, sometimes more thoroughly than others. It really depends, as I think every border crossing is like anywhere. Uh, yeah. And then they go through the bus. They, there's a, a hole underneath, and so they look under the bus. They tear things out. They have dogs around. Uh, and, I mean, you know, Ukrainians stick stuff up uh, under the you know ceiling, right, or, or the panels. That's where they put in. You know, the poles know where all the stuff is. And like I said, I think that the Pol- Polish guards allow some of the stuff to go go through. Like they could probably find 100% of it if they want. But uh, I think they allow part of it to go through. They, they catch half of it and everybody kind of goes on. The Poles look like they're doing their job. The Ukrainians still to make a living. Uh, Poles still get the cheap cigarettes, you know. So uh, that's sort of the experience. Is that sort of so answer how, your question? Yeah, yeah. So what about if you were to travel to the to- – Ukraine is the visa process as cumbersome as going to Russia or because no I know visa. It's, no visa. No visa. No visa. No visa. Yeah, it's very okay, that's easy. nice. So you just awesome. go there. That that happened yeah. in 2006. It was like the one thing that the Yushchenko government did after the Orange Revolution that sort of moved, moved Ukraine. It was the one thing in five years that he was able to accomplish was uh, abolishing the visa uh, regiment. Now, if you want to stay out here like me, you need to get a, a, a visa. But like you can travel out here visa free for three months, uh, you know, and then you can come back again three months. It's like Europe. Right, you can go to Europe for three months. Right, you have to be outside of for three months, and you can go back. So, it's the same so Lee, Lee, do you have a type of permanent residency there, or how does that work? Uh, yeah, uh, right now I'm under a, a student, uh, not permanent residency. I'm a temporary resident. Uh, permanent residency tends to be for either uh, investors or people that are getting married. Uh, I work out here, so I get a temporary permit every year. Right now, I'm on a student permit. Uh, normally, I'm on a foreign journalist permit. So would it be really hard to obtain that um, permanent residency then? Or no, you, you just have you, to no. find some nice uh, Ukrainsky lady. <laughs> yep, which is Zinka. Uh, Zinka Ukrainska. Not not particularly difficult. There's a lot of uh, Ukrainian women that are specifically looking for that. Not all of them. I don't want to give that sort of. Uh, right. Uh, but, but but there are you know there are people there are women in this country that 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 do look for that sort of thing. Uh, but it's also not hard to start a company out here, and a lot of foreigners do that as well. So, so yeah, if you want permanent residency, it's 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 easier than lots of other places in the world. Nice. Okay, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a really easy train. border to cro- cross, though. Like they right. took the passport a couple times, like going into Ukraine, just as a one-time. Like even going into Russia is not all that difficult. I'll be perfectly as long as you have your visa before you go. Yeah, but now, isn't it think, really complicated to get the visa? You need like an invite from someone and yada yada yada. I not really. So I've been to Russia twice, both times before you know Russia invaded Ukraine, um, and I had a I don't want to say a buddy, but a guy that I I knew at the embassy through my first application. He was very helpful. Um, and essentially what you do is you just pay 
you pay a company in Russia to give you the invite letter and they tell you, you don't have to stay at the hotels, but they write what hotels you'll stay at. This is, this is a process. The people yeah. at the, the Russian consulate understand it. It's just a whole thing to get through the, the, the visa process. But you, you pay, I think I paid something like $100, $125 for this letter. Uh, and it's a, like a tourism company. So you just pay for the letter, you get the letter, and that's your invite letter. And so the invite letter, what the Russian government cares about is where you're going to stay. They need to know where you're going to stay the entire time you're there. Uh, and it's usually hotels. So if you book a hotel, then your hotel can give you that letter, right? But if you're staying with friends, for example, like I was doing, then I had to get my, I mean, the, the friends could do it, but it's really onerous on your friends and your your friends in this part of the world you don't want to have to do anything you don't want to have to deal with anything official you don't want to have to deal with any government body it's just a mm -hmm. it's a real hassle and so uh, i would never dream of asking my friends in russia or ukraine to to write that sort of letter for me because then they have to go and deal with the government right so you just pay like i said i think i paid a hundred dollars 125 dollars uh this was about seven years ago uh and you just get the letter and then you bring in the letter to the consulate and and it says like so essentially this company pays the hotels to say that this person is staying at that hotel for the government that's how it works so but you don't have to stay there you know you don't have to you do not have to stay at the hotel but your letter will say that you're staying at this hotel because you're in this city so they have partner hotels in each of the cities and so whatever city you go to and if you if they don't have one then if you're going to like you know Sochi, which I went to, that they would find a hotel in Sochi and say like, this is what we do. They probably pass some money off to the hotel. And then if for some chance the Russian government calls the hotel, they're like, yeah, he's registered here. Oh, okay. That's, that, that's how the process It's complicated. Works. Yeah. Uh, I, I, look, most sketchy. people, most, no, it's not <laughs> sketchy because everybody no. knows how it works, right? Okay, right. The, the, the whole idea is that the Russian government needs to know where you are. Mm -hmm. And so- But I mean, they don't. Really, uh, <laughs> you know, there's no border between Russia and Belarus. So you could literally, you could actually get into Russia from Belarus without Wait, going a, through a border. There's no border crossing there. No. Oh wow! But getting yeah, into the, getting into Belarus is uh, equally onerous. Uh, Belarus is a little bit different. This is we're getting a little bit from a Ukrainian language here, but um, Belarus is, yeah. is hit or miss. <laughs> Uh, right now, you can fly into Belarus. I think you get a five-day visa-free if you fly in. But you can't take the bus across. You can't drive across. You can't take the train across. So you have to fly in. You get five days free. Uh, Belarus will be hosting the World Hockey Championships next year. If you have one ticket, and last time I went to the World Hockey Championships in Belarus, uh, I paid $2 American for my hockey ticket, and that was my visa. And it's good for the whole tournament, so it's like a month visa. Oh. And oh. you could go by train or car or bus. So... Uh, so there's ways to get around the, the Belarus thing, but generally speaking, if you want to see Belarus, uh, you get five days for free. The other way to do it, I had a buddy who came out here to Ukraine and he wanted to go to Belarus to visit friends from the time we were there for the hockey tournament. And uh, <laughs> and there's a bunch of things that you have to do. You have to have the health insurance, right? So we spent $200 on health insurance in Canada. Uh, and then we went to the Belarusian consulate embassy here in Kiev and we gave them the insurance and they're like, oh, it's not valid for Belarus. He's like, no, no, it's valid for everywhere. And so they're like, well, point it out. Where does it say it's valid for Belarus? And it's like a 20-page booklet, and it never literally said that it's valid for Belarus. So they made him buy insurance, which was a bit of a joke. 
So we went across the street to, to buy the insurance for the company. And it cost him, I think it was $3 American for the insurance. So he spent like $200, $250 in Canada. And he got the insurance for three bucks here. So, so if you want to go to Belarus, just come over to Ukraine, apply for it here. Uh, it's far simpler. So, And that's for a visa. That's not your five-day visa. That's going across by train or bus. That's good for like a month or a couple months. So that's, that, like, that's your proper visa to Belarus. That's not the visa free if you fly in. And yeah, yeah, it's quite the region that way. I don't know. I guess Belarus and Russia, though, like that's the government they have there, right? That makes well, so, it. So, that so the, the the leader of Belarus, he's been there for like forty years, right? Lukashenko, <laughs> they call him Batska, like like Daddy Papa, Batska. Batska. How long has he been yeah. in power for, Lee? Uh, boy, all but oh, the first yeah, term. So all but four years. So it'd be twenty. 23 22 23 years, oh, okay like so, yeah and he just uh, actually last week he just banned the two primary opposition candidates from running uh well he didn't it was the central election commission but obviously um there, there, there's likely some play from from the the government there but uh yeah the two primary his two primary opposition figures have been banned from running for president against him this year oh that's great <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but there, there's been a lot of turmoil right in Belarus recently. That's what I heard. Uh, I, what type of turmoil? I don't know. I just, my friend who's from Russia, he's been saying that there's a lot of young people are, are um, not too happy about what's going on. Yeah, well, the young people in, in Belarus see what, what's happening in Ukraine. They see what's going on in Russia and they know where they want to go. The problem is that uh, Lukashenko, there's just no political dissent in yeah. You know, he cracks down very quickly and very hard on political dissent. Outside of political dissent in Belarus, there's, you know, it's a fascinating country that I highly recommend uh, taking the chance to go out and visit and uh, try to meet some Belarusian people. Uh, it's, it's, you know, we're going to talk about Ukrainian language today, but Belarusian language is a, a show that I highly recommend you do. I can uh, recommend some people to chat with about that one. But uh, we'll, we'll bring up a couple of the points of, about Belarus today. But, um, you know, it, people forget about Belarus. It's a very interesting country. You know, politics are a little bit tricky there right now. But, I mean, they're, they understand what's going on. They, they know what happened in Ukraine. They see what, what's going on in Russia. They know what they want. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, I, I love Belarus when I was there. And I highly recommend uh, taking, taking the opportunity to go out and visit if you have a chance. And next year during the World Hockey Definitely. Championships, one hockey ticket. We'll right, uh, be there. Visa free. <laughs> we'll all be right, there. let's bring it. Okay, let's bring it back to that Ukraine language. Yeah. Um, all right, Lee. How did I do? When so I uh, yeah, I'll, I'll introduce it, and then I'm gonna let, let Ian uh, tell a couple well, stories, and I'll. Uh, I'll because sure. uh, like holy, like it turned in, like when you spend four years prepping for a language, kind of like I did, and it was like all packed into like four days. It's kind of surreal, <laughs> but okay, Lee, you take it away, like. Because I showed up in Lviv, you were there. I mean, yeah, and it, I, I mean, it, it's it's interesting because I, when I met Ian in university, he was a Spanish guy. He spoke Spanish. He had spent time am. in. Spanish. But but that's what he studied. That's what what he focused on in our program. That's what his his passion was. And I was Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, Ukraine, in, in in particular, and so and I was studying Ukrainian language at the time, and so. 
I didn't even know when we were <laughs> when, when we were uh, in university together that he was Ukrainian. I didn't know that he was diaspora. I found that out after we were uh, in the program, and uh, and we, you know, he was really excited that I was living out here and he was planning to come out and he was uh, waiting and he he planned this whole diaspora trip. And so I'm going to just give you some, the diaspora trip is something that happens here in Ukraine. So what is diaspora? Just so everyone knows what that, our listeners know what that is. Diaspora are Ukrainians that do not live in Ukraine, but they can be like the great, great, great grandchildren yeah, like for of me, the first I'm Ukrainians. Moved. Third generation. But they right. can also be like people that moved five years ago. Right. So it's really right. any Ukrainian that doesn't live in Ukraine is diaspora. Mm -hmm. uh, and in Canada, the, the the Ukrainian diaspora tends to be uh, very like fifth generation Ukrainian in Canada. So they're, they're Canadians with great grandparents that, that actually lived in Ukraine. But they have a very we'll talk about diaspora. Yeah, a little bit especially later, but, Western Canada, like Alberta. Uh, no, Ontario, too. No, no, okay. don't. don't. Right, yeah, okay. no. Ontario probably has the biggest, most influential too, part of the, the, the Ukrainian diaspora community in Canada. So, uh, yeah, but uh, obviously Alberta, Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba, but Ontario, I, I would say, is probably have the biggest diaspora community. Oh, okay. They have the most people, so. Uh, so, the, the diaspora community is very fascinating. It, it's unlike any other... Uh, ethnocultural group in Canada, the Ukrainian uh, diaspora group, they have such an affinity for the country. It's visceral. It is, uh, they get tattoos. We're talking about great grandchildren of people, you know, who've never been to Ukraine, who don't speak the language, who eat maybe less Ukrainian food than I did before I came to Ukraine, you know, uh, but they still, like I said, they get they get the trizub, you know, like I have on my hockey jersey I'm wearing right now. Uh, they get the trizub tattooed on their arms or their backs or their legs, you know, and they really care about anything that goes on in Ukraine. And one unique aspect of the Ukrainian diaspora community is that they have this need to go back and meet their ancestors. And I don't, I've never seen this. I'm sure it must exist in some other community. But with the Ukrainian diaspora community, they have to come back and they have to meet their... And we're talking about, like, great-grandchildren of people. So, like, some of the people in the family... I'm talking about grandparents never met and never been to Ukraine, right? And yet great-grandchildren want to come out here and they have to go to the villages and they have to meet the, the families. And so I had already done this when Ian came out. And so, so I already had some experience facilitating a diaspora trip uh and so i gave ian some recommendations bring photos you know get as much history as you can know what questions you can try to have names you know and uh and ian's a, a lingoholic he uh he likes the languages so he, <laughs> <laughs> so he made a serious effort at learning ukrainian and uh and he got out here and uh, and we met the family, and you know, I'm, I'm going to give my take a little bit, but I want you to give a little sure. bit of uh, your impression of uh, getting out here and, and meeting your family and that. Yeah, yeah, like for me, it was a matter of, I'm lucky my uncle here in Alberta still <laughs> Skypes regularly with one of the main relatives, Stephen, out there. So that was kind of my in through my um, family 
and then and so we met he, he met he met us in Lviv as soon as oh. he arrived both yeah, so him, he's the Stephen, yeah, and his sons. In yeah. fact, I think I had met Stephen before you arrived. We were both waiting for you when you got off the bus. Oh, right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then I was kind of blurry because I just saw that nine-hour bus ride. It's hot out. I'm kind of dazed. And, like, my Ukrainian's like, all right, let's, let's get it going. And, and then Lee's there. My family's there. And you're like, holy snap, I'm in Ukraine now. <laughs> like it's, this is, like, this is what I dreamed of because you're right. Yeah, it was totally that. I want to go back, meet my family in Ukraine, Ukraine proper. So just like Lee talked about that diaspora wish. Like I was definitely one of those people that wanted to do that. And, and I want to, I, I just want to throw out that Ian is not like a super diaspora, meaning he didn't, he wasn't raised in a home that spoke Ukrainian at home. He didn't go yeah, to the Ukrainian yeah. language school. Around me, but not didn't like, do Ukrainian yeah. dance. There are very Ukrainian diaspora people in Canada. Ian is diaspora because of his heritage, but I don't think you were raised overly Ukrainian. No, no, no. It was just like Ian, an interest, right? Ian, I have a question for you. When did you start uh, learning or studying Ukrainian? 2013. So and when was this trip? 2017. So okay, it was June 2017. And we were in university yeah. together in 2011. So it was two years yeah. after we were in school. Right. So this Stephen I actually met, he came to Canada at one of my cousin's wedding and he was like speaking a little Ukrainian with me. Like, at, like but I spoke nothing like at my cousin's wedding. And that was just like, okay, like I want to go speak Ukrainian in his country one day, like in Ukraine. So that's, that's what got the ball rolling. And then it was like a fine. And then I was pressing Ian to come out here every year to go. Yeah. To yeah. Tournament. He's always like, <laughs> come out here, come out here, come out here <laughs> on top of it. So, uh, so it worked out this this year. So, you know, we, so we meet your family. We get in the car, yeah. you, you, me, and, yeah. and and your uncle. And uh, and yeah. what do you what do you remember from? Because like I I remember, but I want I want your recollections of the first part. So the first leg and our first stop. What do you remember from that? Okay, so yeah, the first day, remember we stayed at your journalism buddy's place, and then the next yeah. day we made arrangements. We're going out. We're going uh, west of Lviv. So imagine like basically going from Calgary to Strathmore, big city, small town. Cause that's where that's I'm East though, <laughs> but never mind. <laughs> whatever, we whatever. The ratio kilometers from the Polish border. Yeah, exactly. So you're going to a small town. I was like, this is the first relatives. You're villages. Be... They weren't even small towns. They Sorry, were villages. villages. Yeah, the villages. Yeah. So show up. This is the first house of, I'm going to say five or six. Uh, like, the first hey, day, are... the first day we hit at least four or five. Yeah. yeah. The first day. Yeah, so everyone's super welcoming. Like, it's all in Ukrainian, so I'm, like, pumped. Like, okay, everything that I've learned, practiced for, this is all happening right now, this weekend. The first place, I just thought it was unique, like, had a big spread of food for us. Um, Lee, do you want to talk about the three shots that you always have to do upon arrival in a Ukrainian household? Sure. So I'll give you a little bit of drinking etiquette when you're in Ukraine. Sure. Because um, it's definitely uh, applied. Well, it's very important. And honestly, I mean, one of the primary reasons why I learned this language is because I was out drinking with people. Uh, and, you know, that, that was how I met Ukrainians. I wasn't hanging around with foreigners when I was out here. It was in a small town and hanging around with locals who didn't speak English. So uh, I had one... Uh, well, obviously, a girl I was dating, which sort of uh, happens when you're when you move to to a different country, and she spoke English, but she refused to translate for me unless I really didn't get what was going on. 
And, uh, and so, you, you know, drinking is one of the best ways to, especially like basic, basic language to just pick up the, the things to the, the greetings, a couple funny phrases, you know, things to get people to laugh, whatever it is. And, uh, and so anyway, there's a massive drinking culture in this part of the world, as I'm pretty sure you're all aware of. Uh, I've written several, I'm a journalist out here and I've written several articles on, uh, I wrote, I wrote an article on how to pour vodka, which was so popular. I actually had to rewrite it and double the amount of rules that I included in the first article. <laughs> Cause I had people who was like, Oh, that's great. But like, you forgot about this rule. But drinking is another thing. So toasting out here, I wrote another, toasting, another article. Toasting. Yeah. Uh, this is an article I wrote two years ago. It's still trending on the website. Like that's how popular it is. Uh, and there's a couple key rules. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Uh, if you're interested, you can contact me. I'll get you the link. So, but the, uh, the, the key things, I'll just give you like three key rules for, for toasting in Ukraine. Uh, first of all, you have to do at least three shots. So two shots is only for a funeral or four shots is only for a funeral. So you have to do an even amount for a funeral. Uh, other than that, you have to do at minimum three. You can't just have one. You can't have two unless it's a funeral. You have to have three or more. Uh, the there's Each shot is for something different. The third shot is always for love, has to be. Zalubov. Yeah, and it could be like, you know, if you don't want to talk about love between a man and a woman or, or whatever, it could be like, I love this city, I love this culture, I love the Maple Leafs, whatever it is, right? Uh, but it has to be love is the third shot. Uh, there's one other time that you can do four shots outside of a funeral, and that's if you're uh, fighting the war in uh, eastern Ukraine. Mm. Uh, they do four shots. The third shot, instead of for love, it's the only time that you can not make a shot for love. Uh, they toast uh this is for the the comrades we've lost so this is for the people that we've lost and then the fourth shot is uh so that you don't drink the third shot to us mm, mm, okay that's hardcore <laughs> yeah, so, so that, the, that last the, one's only been like the last five years then right six years yeah six years okay wow yeah. yeah so lee where do we find where do, where does one find these articles and, and second of all, are they in Ukrainian or English? No, I write it English. So uh, I've been an English language journalist out here. I'm editor of Lviv Today, so you can find that at lvivtoday.com.ua. We'll put some links in the show notes. And, uh, and I'm also uh, a journalist over at What's On Kiev. Uh, and so you can find that at whatsonkiev.com. And we'll put the links up. But um yeah, you can find all these articles. You can find out if you're interested in any Ukrainian holiday, if you're interested in different cultural norms out here. If you Really, if you're interested in learning about how to live in Ukraine or why Ukrainians do certain things, uh, I've likely already written about it, and I have a great article I could send you. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. these three shots, that's like per household that you go to. So... That was the yeah, first but, time. but we weren't just doing we weren't just doing three per house. Ian. We were I know that's why I said that's why I said minimum. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh so wait, um, another question: Is this when you enter the house, like when you first meet the people? You sit down, you have the and meal, then you take the shots. Present yourself. Oh, it's okay, so it's with the meal. It's not like okay, you have to take yeah, it's these with shots the meal. before you enter the house. It's gradual. It's not like bang, bang, bang. Wait, wait, wait! Oh. I, you cannot drink shots of vodka in this part of the world without eating. So even like, okay, uh, like yeah. when I was uh, 
working at the university, I was hanging around with a bunch of 17 year olds. I was 24. Uh, they were just about to enter university. So uh, you enter university, you finish high school at 17 here. And so they were the only kids in town at the time. And, uh, and so they didn't have a lot of money. And so we would go out and buy the cheapest vodka that you could buy, but they wouldn't buy, you could not pull enough money just to get the bottle of vodka. You had to buy the cheapest, grossest bread you could find too, because you had to have something to eat. So even like 16, 17 year old guys that go out and buy vodka out here, they still will buy bread with it. You cannot drink uh, vodka out here without, and it's actually called Harilka in Ukrainian, not vodka, Harilka. You cannot buy Harilka out here without having something to eat, period. It's a rule. That's so interesting. Absolute rule. Yeah, so. I mean, it was amazing because you're like, okay, you're meeting the family, you're trying to speak as best Ukrainian, but at the same time, they're like, all right, here's the food, here's the drink. Like, that was almost like just as important to make sure you were doing that. And just so, to clarify, this is real food. It's not potato chips. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. This it's is, like, like, like kovbasa, which is like sausage and sausage, mashed potatoes and cabbage rolls and yeah. Like the whole like, Ukrainian... Like, 10 o'clock in the morning was the first one that we got, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and yeah, the first day I think we had four or five different, different places and they each had a spread as yes. you do. Cause at any time in, in Ukraine that like a, a, a visitor comes, so a foreigner comes, especially when you're outside of the city, when you go to a village, it's a big thing, you know, like it's not every day somebody from Canada goes to, you know, a village of 800 people in you know, anywhere in Ukraine. And so they bring out all, they bring out the good vodka, right? Or their special Semohonka, right, right. which is homebrew, Semohonka. Uh, we went to one of the, one of your relatives who had a, a bee farm and they had like a massive plate of honey. And yeah. so we would uh, dip the bread in honey, which was fat. Like, like it's such a, it's a key Ukrainian thing out here, but I never had that experience until I was there with with, with Ian, but it's super like village Ukrainian, right? Uh, and I don't know, well, we don't have pictures here, it's a podcast, but you know, we went into one of the houses and I remember it was a small town and probably, I don't know, 450 people or something. I remember like within five or 10 seconds of walking, I told Ian, I was like, Ian, this is, this is like, if I was to write a movie or to set a a movie on Ukraine in a village. This is the perfect house. This is exactly what everybody yeah. thinks a village house in Ukraine looks like. It was like a movie set that we walked into. It was surreal. <laughs> like just small village, Eastern like Ukraine, Eastern Western Europe. Ukraine. Western Ukraine. Eastern Europe, Western Ukraine. And yeah, like it's crazy, man. Because they're like, and all these relatives, so learning. So you have the things. icons up on the wall. You have the Vishavanka mm-hmm. over the Shevchenko painting, <laughs> like like every everything that you could imagine would be in a small town village house was there, perfectly aligned, all cleaned and everything. And then, of course, they have this plate of like this bowl of massive bowl of honey. <laughs> and they gave you like four jars yeah. to take with you too. <laughs> so just imagine eating five suppers in a row, because every house is like a massive spread. Like yeah, so at ten entire... o'clock in the morning. Yeah, starting at ten o'clock in the morning. Yeah. So not only did you have to eat five suppers in a row, but you had to do a minimum of fifteen shots of quality vodka throughout <laughs> the day. <laughs> yeah, like yeah, it was every. 
at least, right, Lee? Yeah. That's, it was at least three, and there were some places that we had five or more. I think yeah. we didn't have more than five that day at any of the places until the last yeah. the last place. So it was surreal. You're taking pictures, you're trying to explain who you are exactly, how you fit into the family. Lee's there with me taking the photos. So, it was just so like, but but but, yeah. but Ian was quite impressive. I, I, you know, so I had he had spoken a few words to me in in Ukrainian uh, online before he came out, uh, but we didn't really have full sentences. But you know, one of the things that alcohol does is it uh, gets rid of some some of your inhibitions. <laughs> and so, you know, by the third house, Ian speaking, I wouldn't say fluently, not, no, but he's no, no. speaking full sentences back to back. A two coming on B one. <laughs> Uh, no, but like, he, he would need one or two words translated from what his family would say and then he would reply to them like i didn't even have to give the full translation i would just translate a couple yeah. of words he didn't get and and ian was having a proper conversation on his own with his family which for me as somebody who speaks ukrainian here and most expats out here choose to speak russian it was mind-blowing for somebody who has never been in this country to be able to speak full sentences and have uh, with a little bit of help, you know, uh, a pretty decent conversation with his family in their language. Yeah. And we've talked about on this show, it's like, there's a lot that goes into like the language learning process before you're in the, like the fun social stage. So I, I've talked about on this show, like I've had, I had tutors, like I, I was going through all that painful process. Cause I, when I did, when I showed up in Ukraine, I wanted to like go to the max, like zero to 60. Right. So that's what it, that's what it was like. Okay, I'm in the I'm in the household. This is my chance here. Right? It's a very it was a short trip actually, but um, yes. But but one thing actually, uh, I think you guys want to ask a couple questions. I'm gonna I, I have a point to make about the trip, but I, I think you guys have sure. Questions. And then we so got to talk about how it led to a wedding. Well, so so one yeah, thing that I just wanted to say real quick was that I'm really happy that you're you're bringing up. Um, the, the alcohol so i keep saying on this podcast i've said it many times that alcohol is the best tool for learning languages like, 100% agree. Should, tool. In, in high school or in like university we shouldn't be in classrooms learning languages like oh, in man, lectures we should be at bars oh man as <laughs> a teacher i can't exactly yes. condone oh, that. <laughs> marcus as not a teacher uh, i would say there's one other thing uh, to, to that, that's as good as alcohol for learning a language, and that's having a uh, boyfriend or a girlfriend. Uh, oh, we talked language. about that too. Yeah, our Mexican. Th- those are the two. Those are the two key things. Uh, but it's not just that if you can if you can find a friend in that language that doesn't speak English, but like you have similar. So when I was in Ostrog and I was friends with these people, I met a guy at a club. So I, I knew the club because I had been to the city before, the town before my first exchange program. And uh, so I went to the club and I was by myself and this guy across the table started chatting with me. He didn't speak English. I spoke 20 words of Ukrainian at that point in time. And we were trying to have this conversation. We both drank. So going back to your point, and then his friend, this girl, she spoke some English. She she ended up translating for us. Uh, And so he ended up calling me a couple days later, the first time I took a a phone call in a foreign language, which was a a whole experience. I remember it clearly. This is like 20 years ago almost. You know, and I remember this phone call clearly. And he invited me out to go and play football. And so uh, I went out and played football and we became best friends from that. And uh, the translator, his friend, ended up 
being my my translator slash girlfriend for the uh, first three or four months I was here. And she is the primary reason I speak Ukrainian right now. She knows this. We've had this conversation many times since. But um, yeah, I, I still chat with that. That whole group of friends there is like my family here. And so it's been 20 years, but we still contact each other regularly. We still see each other a couple times a year. You know, it's... Uh, uh, but he didn't speak he still doesn't speak english 20 years i i think he's learned two words in those 20 years <laughs> and now i speak more or less fluent ukrainian but now i go and see him and i chat with his family in ukrainian and it's so different from when i first met him when i spoke 25 words of ukrainian to now where i you know i can tell them things about ukraine that they agree with but they never thought about it that way you know what i mean like it's a really cool experience yeah man those friendships relationships like huge motivation yeah so uh to, to give a are there other questions right now or should we get back to the story not for me keep we'll going talk about, talk about that wedding no, no 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 before we get to the wedding i got one one, one other thing okay that so uh i've told ian this many times because i've done other diaspora trips post ian uh last summer uh actually a, a city councilor from Saskatoon, my city in, in Canada, uh, came out here uh, with her husband, a former MLA in Saskatchewan. And we went, uh, we took them out to almost the same communities as Ian uh, for, it was his, uh, his ancestral family. And we went to one village, which was, I don't know, 12 people. And we ended up finding somebody that knew his relatives it wasn't his relatives but knew them she was i think she was 89 years old but when 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 ian was there and i told him this it's ian's diaspora trip was i wish we had a documentary crew with us because it was perfect it was so it was the dream diaspora every diaspora person comes out here and wants to do this trip that we the diaspora trip that i've been talking about Everybody wants exactly the experience that Ian had. So we went to something like 15 different homes. Every time we went through, like Ian went through, like how he's connected with elements of the family and they would go through, okay, that person was here. When did they go to Canada? They had this whole, you know, okay, where do you fall into the family tree? But at least at two or three of the homes, they actually had family trees. So these, these uh, paper notebooks, they weren't notebooks, but they were, they were like binded papers with actual photographs of many of these people. And then their name in like a bio or like when they were born and died, what their jobs were. And we, we went, uh, one of the, 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 probably the most, uh, the, the thing I remember the most about Ian Strip out here is one of these places, they took us to a cemetery, which is a pretty standard thing to do on a diaspora trip. And so we, we went to the cemetery and they're sitting there and they're pointing out where his dead relatives lied in the cemetery, but they weren't just pointing it out because they had the book open. So they point to the, the person in the book with the photo and the bio and be like, that person is lying there. That person is there. And at the same time, they're trying to figure out like where Ian's side of the family relates to this family tree in the book. And so you have like six family members hovering around this like family tree book in the middle of a cemetery. And it was just brilliant. It's what every diaspora person dreams of when they come out here. And Ian had, and I tell them 
how lucky he he was. He had literally the greatest diaspora experience, diaspora trip you can have in Ukraine. And that was even before the wedding that we ended up at, which uh, he's going to tell you about right now. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Well, Cody, you've talked about, you have some heritage languages that you'd like to learn perhaps in the future as well. (laughs) If anyone's thinking about a heritage language, like whatever your background is, like, I highly recommend doing it because, oh my God, like, like even maybe you can't get exactly in touch with your long lost relatives. Like I did, like, it's quite the thing because Cody, aren't you like partly Finnish and. Uh, yeah. Swedish, Finnish and uh, Welsh, I believe it is. Don't learn yeah. Swedish. <laughs> or a waste of time. And actually um, my, my sister uh, did a Europe trip after she graduated high school yeah. And uh, she went up to, she was with her friend and they both went up to Sweden and, uh, and Finland as well. And they, they visited all the, all the family that we have there. But unfortunately she didn't, she wasn't learning Swedish or Finnish, but um, she thought it was a really, really amazing experience. I could tell it had left an impression on her because um, in the past few years, like she's been like kind of like here and there trying to learn Swedish. Oh, okay. Right, yeah. so it had that influence. Yeah, absolutely. On her there. Cody, uh, have you ever been to Finland before? No, I haven't. So uh, I need to tell you, because like I, this is my part of the world and I hear stories, and Finland is like the number one place to, to go to. It's I, I'm going there next year. During the hockey championships, Canada plays in Latvia, so we can go up from Latvia to, to Finland. But uh, if you're interested and you're ever, you want to you know experience Latvia, Belarus next year, uh, Let's do Finland next, next uh, May, June. Suomi. Suomi. Kosken korva. Sauna. And then we have our actual Swedish guys. <laughs> yeah, go to Finland, man. Finland Finland's yeah. fun. These right. hair trips. Yeah, it's super cool. But then, okay, the cherry on top for me. Like, cap off talking about No, my- so it was already the perfect yeah for a trip, and then this happened. Okay. So does this random weekend, uh, Shabanka relative, that's my mom's maiden name, is getting married in Lviv. And like, they knew we were like visiting, visiting Canadians in town and his friend, who's an expat out there, they're there. Do you guys want to come? Not just, <laughs> not just an expat, the editor of Lviv today. Sure. Okay, Lee. No, 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 no. But no, the wedding was in Lviv. It's, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's my city. Man. Yeah, so. your city, your city. And anyway, we got an invite to this Ukrainian wedding. And I don't know, man, if you want to talk about like... Wait, wait, wait. Like, tell them about the prep for the... Tell them about the prep for the wedding. Because you had to go on a little fashion trip before. Oh, yeah. Well, okay, for those watching on YouTube right now. So this Vishavanka, uh, this was bought by one of the relatives we had met the previous day for me. Because he's like, you got to go to the wedding, a Ukrainian wedding in style. So, yes, thank you. I forget the relative's name currently, but he sported me out with this. Lee, you were rocking one too? I uh, no, I, didn't, I don't think I had mine. You didn't with, have one with okay. me at the time? No, I have a three. But Ian's, like, I, I, I know Vishavanka's out here. I write about him regularly. Ian's Vishavanka is beautiful. It is one of the nicest I've seen. Uh, it was not, not cheap. And yeah, I was like, like, we got, like, like don't, don't pay awesome. that much. You know? And he's like, no, 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 we're doing this. And, yeah. and anyway, he buys it. spoiled. 
very spoiled. And then go to, it was super cool. You show up to the wedding itself that we didn't even know exist was going to happen. There's our name on the invitation in Cyrillic. <laughs> I remember Lee written in Cyrillic and like, holy crap, man, we're, like, we're at an actual Ukrainian wedding. Sit down. Uh, the traditional music is playing. The talk, I don't, there's rules for shots at weddings. Um, Games. The, the the band the band is playing like Ukrainian music and then I just remember eventually at one point like we're eating all the traditional food the dishes um one point there's a, a dance circle that you're going yeah. around and you have like a little towel so say yeah. I don't know say we we all of us four of us and it's then a, we went to girls and you got to like yeah. put down the towel in front of the girl that you want to dance with get on your knee ask her to dance she'll come dance with you you do like a round or two and then she grabs the towel and she goes. No, 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 no. You're, nuts, missing, you're, missing, you're missing a key point of this. So this okay. is a, okay, a you're key the thing at weddings. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, there, there's somebody in the middle that, that dancing around, and then you go and choose the person. But before I get into this dance, normally at weddings, they mark you when you walk in. So you have to buy a pin from the couple, uh, and they mark you if you're married or if you're single. So they put the pin over your heart oh, if yeah, you're married, right, and they put the pin right. over the other side of your chest if you're not married. So everybody, you're already marked when you walked in. And so the dance happens after the meal. So you've already had like, I don't know, 10 or 15 shots of vodka at this point in time. Also, you've had a lot to eat. So it's not, you're not like hammered, but you're fun. You want to dance, you want to sing, right? Yeah, exactly. It's that time of and night. And so, so they have this this thing and, and the whole the whole idea of it is to pair off single people with other single people. And so when a, a girl's in the, the middle, she goes and chooses the guy, because you have to kiss at the end. This is the whole thing, right? And the kiss can be a peck on the cheek or it can be a full-blown, you know, <laughs> like yeah, yeah. French kiss, you know, 25 seconds sort of thing, whatever you want. Well, whatever the two people want, right? Uh, and so when a girl is there, she goes and chooses the guy. When the guy's there, he goes and chooses the girl he wants, right? And so, like, if it's a married person, then they'll go and choose, like, a, a kid or whatever. But but often, it turns out that young people that are single, like Ian, it's their opportunity to uh, dance with and kiss the uh, girl that they're interested in, uh, you know, chatting with after the dance. Yeah. And this happens at all weddings. Well, not every wedding, but, like, it's a, it, I've seen it at several weddings in Ukraine. It's a pretty traditional uh, experience yeah. at a wedding. Yeah, no, it was the dancing, the singing, the eating. It was just uh, right. So I wanna, I wanna know what happened. Just it was like party, man! Like absolute party. Yeah, but and with yeah, the the matching. Uh, like you just dance, right? Like you just dance. You go up. Yeah, I guess I. Was so yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to understand. Ian was. Uh, he had to be a good behavior because it was his first time meeting his family, and. Uh, you know, he was like out of the blue invited to a wedding with his buddy from Canada that nobody knew, right? <laughs> so, so he he wasn't it wasn't really like he didn't. I, how many people did we know Just, there, Ian? Have, like, I, the, no, not many. Like the few relatives, like the guy yeah. that bought you your shirt and his wife, I think. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. So yeah. no French kissing. No, no, man, no, 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 no. Not Just, just participating it was damn that we have to be there that weekend. Um, the the anyway. French kissing is usually for the guys that know what they're doing. It's usually for the locals. Yeah. <laughs> so so I, I've been at several weddings and I've done this a few times and I've never 
I've never done. I don't even choose the girls I'm like most interested in because I'm too, yeah. you know. I, just, I, I would I would now because I'm more of a local now. But like at the at that period of time, you know, you're just like what what's going on, right? Yeah, yeah. It, it was it was nuts. It was super fun. Uh, I recommend weddings abroad. <laughs> going if you can get weddings and funerals also are fascinating. Okay, funerals. Um, <laughs> you know, yeah, no. no, no, like uh, many, were those two shots at funerals? How many shots at weddings? <laughs> uh, weddings go for three days, so you're, <laughs> and I'll tell you why because I've done this a few shots. times. So, well, no, you wake up and you're kind of hungover and you're kind of drunk, right? But the the thing is there's so much food made for a wedding and Ukrainians don't throw it out at the end. It's not like a restaurant. They don't, they take it home with them. They paid for it. So you eat it. So you have that for breakfast the next day. But when you have that much food, you can't have that much food without drinking. So you start drinking again, whenever you eat 10, 11 o'clock in the morning. But by the time, because you're already, you've had so much alcohol the day before you have a few drinks with breakfast and you're, pretty drunk by the time breakfast is done and you still have a ton of food and so this goes on for days until they finish the food but uh i'm not kidding you. this is this is a regular thing yeah. not just in ukraine this is a slavic world sort of thing mm-hmm. uh so yeah how many shots do you have i mean i went to a wedding once the first wedding i went to in ukraine with many i was like 17 years ago or something like that and there was nine crates of vodka I think there was a 250 people at the wedding. It was a really big one. And there was nine crates of vodka. I don't even know how many bottles that is. It's got to be like 900 bottles of vodka or something like that for one wedding. Wow. Yeah. I'm pretty nice. I'll give you another, I'll give you another story. So my buddy, I I was telling you the guy that I met at the club, uh, my, my friend who never spoke English, his name's Vasya. And so uh, it was him and our other buddy's birthday. They had the birthday in the same week. And so I had met him two or three weeks before and they asked me to borrow my backpack. And I have like a huge 45 liter backpack, like backpacking backpack. And I'm like, what do you need it for? He's like, oh, well, we needed to take the vodka home. I'm like, it's not too big. He's like, no, 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 we need your bag. <laughs> so I was a little bit like, are they going to steal my backpack? Like, And no, literally, they took my backpack. They filled it up with vodka for their birthday party. They were 17 years old. <laughs> and they filled up a 45-liter backpack of, uh, of vodka for their birthday. You know, But it was a dual birthday, and there was, uh, you know, 60 people there or something like that. So, like, that, that's how it works here. And remember, it's not just a vodka because – you're not supposed to get people drunk in Ukraine. The person that's pouring, their responsibility, and it's part of the rules, it's part of my article I wrote in the rules, you're supposed to pour with what's called a light hand. Meaning, if people have a hangover the next day, you did not do your job properly. So your goal is to have people drunk enough that they want to dance and sing, but not drunk enough that they are puking or want to fight. Seems reasonable. Yeah, reasonable aim, for sure. But it's a responsibility to the person that has yes. the hand. 
Correct. And, another, and that's the person. That's that's the person pouring too, right? It's the, the person with the hand is the person pouring. And here's the Correct. thing. So if I, so for example, on our trip with uh, with Ian, we went to five places that first day. If I had poured the vodka in the first place that we went to, I would have to pour it at all five places we went to that day. So whoever has the hand at the first place, it doesn't matter what bar you go to, what house you go to. The whole night, the person that pours the first drink pours for the rest of the night. Yeah, I don't know. It's pretty. It was pretty crazy. Super fun. Um, okay, just uh, so that was my trip, heritage trip. Um, anyone the heritage language, highly recommended. All right, I just want to ask Lee here, latter half of the show. So. Cody, you were speaking some Russian and you're asking why the start and we kind of touched on it. So Lee, if you just kind of talk about one of the things I put down for our show notes to talk about today is bilingualism and how Canada is an officially bilingual country, but Ukraine's not yet how people in Ukraine are actually like more bilingual than Canadians. And yeah, so this is what you can ask about this too. This is very interesting for me because I'm an English speaker in Canada and I'm a Ukrainian speaker in Ukraine, which uh-huh. means that I'm the majority language speaker in Canada, but I'm the minority language speaker in Ukraine. And now... Right, so just one, to make that clear, Ukrainian's the you the minority language in Ukraine. I, I'll clear this up in a second. It's not yeah. the minority language. Okay. And the reason it's not the minority language is because this country is fluently bilingual. Meaning, every person in Ukraine can speak both languages fluently. Now, every person in Ukraine will not agree with what I just said. Because they might not be able to say like 70 words in a language and they'll be like, no, 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 I'm not fluent in that language. But they can watch movies, listen to music, have conversations. And I know this for a fact because I don't speak Russian and I've traveled around this country, Eastern Ukraine. I've lived in Eastern Ukraine as an election observer several times uh, for many months. And because I'm a foreigner, they will speak to me in Ukrainian. They would not speak to me in Ukrainian if I was a local because they knew that I could speak Russian. And so in this country, everybody speaks both languages. So what language you speak is a choice. It has nothing to do with ability. It's a choice. And when it's a choice, it becomes a political statement. And so language in this country is the, for the first quarter century of independence, it was the single defining political issue in Ukraine. And to this day, if you want somebody to talk in Ukraine, ask them about their thoughts about Russian or Ukrainian language, and they will talk to you for 20 or 30 minutes straight without interruption, telling you their ideas of Russian, Ukrainian. The key point I want to make is in Canada, we are an officially bilingual country where the vast majority, probably 80% or more, are not bilingual. This country is an officially unilingual country where the entire country is fluently bilingual with Russian. There's other languages as well, but I'm just talking about Ukrainian and Russian right now. And that is a fascinating... uh, If you look at the laws that we put in Canada on bilingualism, and you look at the laws in Ukraine on unilingualism, 
they're for much the same reason. They're to protect languages. But mm-hmm. we had to do bilingualism in Canada to protect French, and they had to do unilingualism in Ukraine to protect Ukrainian. So that's that's the basis. Now I'm going to let you guys uh, ask questions from there. Okay, so I have a question. How do people learn Russian in Ukraine? I, I mean, it's just, it's, it's spoken. So uh, it would be... But, like, where would you speak? Where would you speak Russian? So uh, I'll speak... I'll answer this question from somebody from Eastern, from Western Ukraine, where they speak Ukrainian at home. Okay, because in Eastern Ukraine they speak uh, Russian at home. Okay, can I just a quick question? What is considered yeah. Eastern Ukraine? Like, is Dnipro and Donetsk? That's yeah. Eastern Ukraine, obviously, but not Kiev. Yeah, Kiev, Kiev would be considered Eastern Ukraine. Really? Uh, as far well, okay. Central so, East. well, we're we're gonna drop the central from it. If you go yeah. historically. Uh, the river, the Dnipro River through Kiev, yep. split it. So left bank, Kiev would oh, be eastern wow. Ukraine. Right bank, Kiev would be western Ukraine. Okay, got it. So, and of course, the central—that's a modern concept. But like traditionally speaking, Kiev was the like the the border. The river was the border. The Dnipro River was the border. So, um, how do Western Ukrainians speak Russian? Uh, well. There's several reasons. First of all, you have to remember that people my age, I'm 40 years old, people my age are born in the Soviet Union, right? So they had to speak Russian. Uh, In the Soviet Union, you had to speak Russian if you wanted to be a businessman, if you wanted to be a politician, if you wanted to be a diplomat, if you wanted to have any sort of significant job. So what the the Soviets were very good at doing is marginalizing the indigenous nation uh, languages of the different Soviet republics so that they were like farmers speak that well, you can do that if you want to be cultural if you want to like dance or something you know but like if you want to be a professional if you want to be an intellect if you want to be an academic person you have to speak Russian right and so you know I'm 40 and everybody 40 and above just think of this or less than that 35 and above or what it was, you create 30 and above. Anybody mm-hmm. 30 and above obviously speaks Russian because that was the, the language that they were brought up in, right? So even if you spoke Ukrainian at home, you still had to know Russian. You had to know Russian just to get ahead in life. But more than that, all of the movies that you watched were in Russian. All of the best music uh, outside of a couple of groups. Like culturally. Which, pop culture. It's like mm-hmm. in Canada. Pop culture. We, we know so much about American history just through pop culture from watching Disney movies and Warner Brothers and things like that, right? So this country, it's a small country like Canada is to the United States or like Ireland is to Great Britain. So it's dominated by Russian culture. And rightfully so. Russian culture, pop culture is spectacular. There's so much talent in that country when it comes to art, music, dance, you know, all that sort of stuff. And of course it comes in because they speak the language, right? So still today, and we're talking 27 years after independence, every person speaks Russian. And it's not like it used to be to get ahead in life. It's not because that's what will, it, certainly it helps. I mean, if you want to do business, you know, you have to learn Russian uh, in, in Ukraine. But, uh, but, but it comes down to, you know, that's what other people speak. That's what the movies are in. That's what the uh, music is in. 
that's what the books are in too. The, the best books in Russian, the Russian book market is spectacular and it's so superior to the Ukrainian market. It's, it's similar to the Canadian book market versus the American book market. How many Canadian books do you, do you buy? Probably not many, probably not many. And that's the whole thing with Ukraine too. Now Ukraine's done very well, especially post Maidan in. Okay. And uh, just for our listeners, Lee, can you, what is Maidan? Uh, so Maidan was the revolution, the, the, the third revolution, the second one known in the West, it happened in 2013, 14, about six years ago, seven years ago now. Uh, and it essentially it deposed the, uh, the president who ran off to Russia, where he continues to live right now uh, as a fugitive uh, and sort of installed a, a, a super pro-European parliament and president. Mm-hmm. So that's okay. Timoshenko, right? No, that's not Timoshenko. Wait, that's 2004. Oh, yeah. That's no, right. no, no. And Tim, yeah. Tim, Timoshenko did not win the 2004 okay, election. Okay, okay, okay. She lost the 2004 election. It was Yushchenko yeah. that won the 2004 election. Yushchenko. Yeah. Yushchenko. So where, where is Timoshenko right now? Then? Tim, Timoshenko is the leader of a party. Uh, oh, Timoshenko okay. is one of the most famous people in the country. Oh, one of the five yeah, most famous people in the sense. country. She is, uh, she's been in politics her entire adult life for virtually the entire uh, post-independence Ukrainian history. Everybody has an opinion on Timoshenko. Oh, no, uh, you know what? I'm, I'm mixing, sorry, Lee. I'm mixing up Timoshenko and Yushchenko. I'm, so, I'm really sorry. Oh, okay. Yushchenko, Yushchenko. Yushchenko has essentially retired to anonymity. That's uh, pretty right, much right. right. Got it. Okay, now I'm on board. Kim, Kimoshenko is still leader of a uh, rather important political party in the country. Right. Yes. Now I'm okay. on board. All right. So what's happened after the Maidan, Lee, with these language laws in Ukraine? So, well, I mean, I, I, I think I need to give a little bit more of a history before I get into the mo- modern stuff, because you got to give a bit of a background of, sure. of where, where things are at. Uh and I, I'm good. I'm not going to do a whole huge thing, but there's a couple things you need to remember. Uh, one of them is that the Russian Empire, the Soviet Union, has consistently uh, tried to eliminate indigenous languages from other parts of this world, uh, the, the, this Eastern European former Russian Empire world. So it's not just Ukraine, it's Belarus, which continues to happen. It's Latvia, it's Lithuania, it's Moldova. It's, you know, I'm not even talking about Kazakhstan and and those ones. So this is a policy that's been going on for a long time. But uh, as far as uh, like 1876 was the, uh, you look at the Ems Ukaz, which you should look it up. Uh, You sent that to me today. Yeah, and Ukaz is uh, like a government edict uh and essentially banned ukrainian from like you couldn't teach it you couldn't print papers in it you couldn't have clubs in it you you know essentially the only people that could speak ukrainian are farmers so this was 1876 right so this is 50 years almost before the soviet union existed and actually Mm -hmm. when the soviet union first came about they were very pro-ukrainian language uh and pro-latvian language because they were they were they needed the support of the republics or what would become the future republics of mm-hmm. the Soviet Union because they were more worried about uh, czarists or, you know, the, the empire coming back. So they, they 
actually promoted indigenous languages for a good 10, 15 years after the Soviet Union first came about uh, in order to build support to battle the czarist forces. But after they had sort of defeated those ones in the 30s, then they went after the languages and the same sort of thing, same ems ukas again. They, you know, essentially banned Ukrainian from, from everything. They killed, uh, they purged a bunch of the key people uh, that, that, that were advancing the language at the time. And, and then I mentioned it earlier, uh, the Soviet Union essentially marginalized indigenous languages in the Soviet Union to being rural cultural it's cool if you want to dance that way but if you want to be like a business person or a real man you have to speak russian right or if you want to get ahead in life you have to speak russian and so that's that's sort of the context of where ukraine and other countries came into independence so uh, a couple of things that ukraine did when they first came into independence one of them was they banned dual citizenship which is still in effect today, even though it is completely not enforced. But they did that because you didn't want, you know, a third of the country getting Russian passports. Could you imagine if a third of Ukraine right now had Russian passports, were legitimate Russian citizens? What would the war in the East look like if they had Russian passports? I don't know. Do you tell me? What would it look like? Well, that's, it's the same cause that, that, that the Nazis used to, to move in the countries. We're there to protect our own citizens, right? Hungary does the same thing with giving passports to uh, Hungarians that are outside of Hungary. They do it in Romania, especially, but they do it in Ukraine, they do it in Slovakia and other, uh, other countries. It's, mm-hmm. it's a way to, it's a foreign policy procedure and it's a way to justify other means of going into a country. And so uh, Ukraine... Ukrainian leaders at, at the beginning were well aware that this was something that has been used in this part of the world in the past, uh, mm-hmm. recent past, the past 50 years. And so they made this country unilingual and they made uh, dual, they still banned dual citizenship. Now, I'll tell you, virtually every you know, major politician and every oligarch in the country has more than one passport including virtually every president that's been, you know, so they don't enforce it, but they, they still can't allow it because they can't allow a third of the country, you know, getting passports to Hungary and, and Russia and other countries. Right. So, uh, but another, another law that they, they did is they, uh, they made Ukrainian the sole language of education. Now there are right. Russian yeah, schools. Yeah. This is found fascinating. Yeah. So they they have Russian Alan? schools. They, so yeah, I can. Uh, first, first of all, I want to be clear that there are Russian schools for people that have ties to the Russian language, heritage ties, meaning if your grandparents were from Russia, you can go to, to a Russian language school. But uh, all of the national institutions in Ukraine are Ukrainian only. I go to Shevchenko University. You are not allowed to speak Russian in class. And sometimes they do. In fact, sometimes a professor will ask the students, do you mind if I speak Russian? And if all of the students agree, they can speak Russian. But if there's one student that says no, they can. Nobody, nobody can uh, speak Russian. So what, just one dissenter in a class. And they're not even supposed to speak Russian, even if everybody agrees, just for the record. But, uh, but the, the whole idea is that you need to foster a language that has been 
specifically targeted for 150 years to make sure that it doesn't go away like Belarus. You have to have these sorts of laws. Now, I'll give you an example of when I was in Belarus. I was in Belarus in 2014 for the World Hockey Championships. And uh, I was there for a couple of weeks and we were hanging around with a rather young crowd. So I would say uh, around 19 to 26, somewhere in that area. So pretty young, mostly in university. And I didn't speak Russian, but I spoke Ukrainian. And about half of the people that we were hanging around with, let's say about 20, 25 people. So, you know, not it's not a huge demographic. This is anecdotal, not uh, prescriptive by any stretch of the imagination. But uh, of, of those 25 people, about half of them spoke Belarusian and half of them only spoke Russian. Only, only Russian, no Belarusian. And so when I was chatting with them, when they didn't speak English, I would speak Ukrainian and I would speak to the Belarusian speakers who would have to translate my Ukrainian because they spoke Belarusian to Russian. So I would say like roughly 80% of Ukrainian Belarusian are similar. So they got most of what I was saying. I didn't have to really explain a lot. Most of the vocabulary is similar. When they spoke to me in Belarusian, I understood most of what they were saying as well. So, uh, but I, I would have to find Belarusian speakers specifically to translate for me. Now in Ukraine, they didn't want that to happen. And so they've actively, uh, another law that they have here is that you can, the, the doesn't matter where the movie comes from. It has to be dubbed into Ukrainian, not Ukrainian subtitles. It has to be dubbed. So if a Russian movie is being shown here, it's dubbed in Ukrainian. If a Hollywood movie has been shown here, it has to be dubbed in Ukrainian. That's still the law today. It's really frustrating for English speakers because we can't, in virtually every other country outside of Ukraine, this part of the world, Hungary, for example, I can go and watch James Bond in English with the Hungarian subtitles. But in Ukraine, it's dubbed. And so it's really frustrating. Now, they've, they've got around that because they can have special showings in their original language. So it can't be a regular show, but you can have like one showing in Russian language or one showing in English language. So now some movies we're able to see in English, but nothing Disney or, or Pixar outside of Star Wars. Star Wars, for some reason, gets a pass, but nothing else from Disney can <laughs> watch in English. So, so there's a lot of these laws that they had in place to protect the language. Yeah. Uh, and now I'm going to pause here for, for questions, but then I'll get into how things changed after the uh, revolution in 2013-14. I don't really have anything. Uh <laughs> I, I have something interesting that I want to bring up. It's like it's, it it's political it in nature, but it's like a bit different. Mm -hmm. Bring it up. It's uh, well, since we're talking about like controversial stuff, um, I'll bring up something that's like been pretty hot in the news in Canada in the past, I think, week or so. But um, there was a there was a statue in Ottawa that was. Did you guys hear about this? It was like defaced. Yep. I know what you're talking about. And it was like the, the statue was to like essentially to like Nazi collaborators. from. Oh, Ukraine. this is the Ukrainian one. Yeah. Yeah. And, Oakville. Oh, Oakville. Wasn't yeah. It? And in light of all the Black Lives Matter protests, like they went and defaced it. And now, like, there's this big controversy on, like, 
um, all that. And um, there's actually like, if you look into it, like there's kind of a big like correlation between like Nazi collaborators and from Ukraine that came to Canada. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> okay, give you your... You're going to have to be a little bit careful with this one because this is uh, literally a Russian disinformation talking point that uh, they've been very successful in pushing. And so um, I fundamentally disagree with the fact that uh, you're talking about Nazi collaborators from Ukraine. There were people in this country that collaborated with the Nazis, not because they believed in what the Nazis were doing, but because they were nationalists and they wanted their own country and they didn't want to be under the Soviets. Uh, this was, this is a super, super tricky thing for all countries in this region. Uh, and I, I mean, there's, there's things that have happened, especially Croatia's really bad. Ukraine was next really bad as well. Lots of bad things happened here. Um, and I, there's a lot of, uh, Jewish people, Westerners in this country, and we have these conversations regularly as expats, mm -hmm. uh, because this is this is something that they they believe in, that they've been taught, that they've uh, researched, and and th this is what they've read. This is also something that Russia pushes as uh, a reason for the West to dismiss Ukraine. Mm. Uh, the, th the important thing to remember is that every country in this region has virtually the same anti-Semitic history as the other one. So, but for the little countries, so take out Russia, take out Germany, you know, you know, look at these little countries that have been, you know, fighting for their independence. Essentially, everything that they did was to try to get, Poland is a great example for this, uh, as well but they did some bad things to get their independence and if you look at world war ii it didn't really matter i mean okay so you support the soviets is it any better you're supporting stalin you know like it doesn't matter what you do it's easy to rail on somebody from any country uh in world war ii because they were supporting their the bad guy because everybody was bad right so it's really hard to 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 talk about nazi collaborators but the problem i have is that this is something that russia uses right now to target it's a specific it's one of the primary if not the number one uh, disinformation lines on ukraine is that this country is anti-semitic this country is uh full of far-right radicals Russia has way more far-right far radicals, is as or more anti-Semitic than any other Slavic country in this part of the world. But they've legitimately and honestly have the West believe in these arguments that for some reason Ukraine is more radical or more anti-Semitic than any other country in the region, which is absolutely false. It's just absolute false. So I, I hope that was clear i like it's a super touchy subject and yeah. i know that people will come out what i just said but what i just said i i i can back up and i'm i'm, I'm yeah. okay with with that so okay yeah well, i mean like the point isn't to like get into like a debate about this i just thought it would be like an interesting even though it's super controversial i just yeah it, like, interesting. it is really recent yeah because i was in the news last week mm -hmm. well yeah. stabat bandera is 
is uh, he's a figure that's very popular in Western Ukraine and super popular in Russia. I mean, like, like super popular. So Russians call pro-Ukrainians banderisti, so like banderists. Mm-hmm. After this one guy, because uh, and he was brutal, man. Like uh, him and his his uh, military leader Shuhevich, they would es- execute Polish like professors before World War II happened because they were they were super patriotic, which is why Western Ukraine loves them. My argument is generally, I bo- I don't believe that they were. I don't believe that anti-Semitism was what was driving them. Uh, I believe that nationalism is what was driving them, but they did some brutal things. And I tell Ukrainians regularly that you can find better figures to put up for, for patriots, but they're also not what Russia makes them out to be. Uh, and I mean, Russia, Russia is right now rehabilitating Stalin, who is far worse than any of these uh, people that they, they, they try to label on, on, it's not just Ukraine. This is a regular disinformation thing for, for lots of different countries. Soros, for example, right? Uh, so this, this is a regular line, but to get back to your statues thing in Ukraine, it's far more interesting what happened after the revolution in 2013-14, where they did, uh, there was about two years, three years of decommunization, where essentially they pulled down every Lenin statue in the country. So we had that, you know, Black Lives Matter sort of thing right after the revolution here, uh, where they literally, they called it, um, what was it Lenin Padov, so Lenin's falling. And within, there was actually a map they had online of all of the Lenin statues that, that had come down. And I was actually in Kiev when they pulled down the, the Lenin statue here. It was the uh, second Sunday, if I'm not mistaken, of the protests. And it was a really interesting, I'll tell you this because this is a very good story and I actually have videos I can uh, send you afterwards if you're interested. But um, we were, it was, a so Sundays were the major rally days during the, the revolution. And so people from outside of Kiev, from across the country would come to Kiev for the major rally on Sunday. And so we came in for, for the major rally that weekend. It was the second, second weekend of, of, of it. Uh, so it was after the protesters had been beaten. It was what, like it was a fully fledged like mass protest movement at this point in time. And this was the million man march sort of moment. This was the, the Sunday where they had, uh, they speculated over a million people at the Maidan for the speeches that afternoon. And so by that point in time, the protesters had taken over City Hall, Kiev City Hall, and that was their, their home base. And so because, you know, it was a people's hall, you can see this in some of the American cities right now. Uh, I think Seattle had uh, had an area like this for a while. Well, this is what happened in Kiev, and this was integral to the revolution. And so I had never been to Kiev City Hall. And so after the, the speeches, we went to do a, a tour of City Hall. And so we were waiting in line. We were third from getting in, and they paused letting people in and about 40 people poured out and like I was a journalist at the time and I was thinking about following them but you know it's it's super dangerous <laughs> it's not even the United States like it's it's far more dangerous because the government can literally turn on you at any point in time with guns or more which happened about three months later but uh so we went in we did the the whole tour and city hall I mean they had a part of it was uh 
uh, a hospital. Part of it was a canteen, like a restaurant for volunteers. Part of it was an organizational center. Part of it was a hotel. So where pro protesters would sleep during the day because all the protesting happened at night, like the, the, the dangerous parts. Part of it was a training center. And the top floor was actually the media center. And so we ended up at the media, media center and we had a live feed from, from Lenin. And we actually were about two blocks away from Lenin at the media center in Kiev City Hall, the protesters media center. And we saw the live feed of them pull it down, which was, you have to understand this Lenin statue was uh, the only reason it hadn't been taken down before is because the socialists, the communists, made up enough of parliament to block legislation to take down that statute. So it had been a flashpoint in this country for 25 years. And so when it actually came down, you know, seeing the, the protester crying, hugging, high-fiving, it was like, it was a really a surreal moment. And I, I turned to my photographer at the time and it was like, look, they just brought, we're two, two blocks away. We can go and check this out. We can get some photos. The, the police can't get there for half an hour. There's too many people. So like we can go there, get some photos and get out of there before the police show up and, you know, stuff starts happening. So we left and we went right over to, to the statue. Like I said, two blocks away. It took us about a five minute walk to get there. And uh, you can see us, uh, I have pictures of us. Uh, you can see, I was wearing a green hoodie. So it's pretty easy for, <laughs> for you to see me. Because everybody wears black and brown out here, gray. So, uh, so I have pictures of us on TV. And we literally got right up there. We got pieces of Lenin. I have videos of people taking a sledgehammer to him. It was like the Berlin Wall moment here. Uh, and so, you know, you brought up statues in, in Canada and North America right now. Uh, you know, the one thing I, I, I just, I have to add before I, I, I let you guys get back into this is I came from Western Canada. I came from, you know, a place where we sort of look down on protesters. Oh, you don't have a job. You got nothing better to do to go up and protest. You know, you, you live through a revolution and you see how important protests are to a democracy to you know to allowing the people to stand up to garbage politicians and politics uh you know you see what's going on in the states and you, you know you may not disagree with what some of the protesters are doing and i get that but you know what you don't have a democracy unless people can protest so you need to you need to protect i i i would I would honk for a protest I don't support just because I support them actually protesting. That, that's, it's, it's been a fundamental, you know, 180 degree shift for me on protesting. I support protesters protesting things I fundamentally disagree with. But, you know, in, in a democracy, you, you have to have protests because if not, you know, this country, Ukraine, would not be where it is right now if it wasn't for protests. So I've done my little spiel, and you guys can go. From there. That's my that's my statues bit. So right on. What's our running time right now, Marcus? We're at uh, an hour and thirty six, a little bit. I was thinking about going like ten right. minutes more, then I gotta go. To yeah, Bob. But uh, yeah. yeah, Lee, that was super interesting to to mm, hear your yeah. perspective on that. So no more, there's no more Lenin statues in, in all of Ukraine, even in the East or? Yeah, uh, yeah pretty much. Uh, the one thing that that doesn't apply to is uh, military stuff. So if there's, um, if Lenin's on a, 
I don't think Lenin's on anything, but uh, sometimes you'll see the hammer and sickle on uh, war memorials, and those are not being decommunized. They're war memorials, so so those are allowed to stay. I can't think of any Lenin on any of them. I like look. So lots of streets were named Lenin, and you know the the year after that, all of, even in like the Donetsk region. Right, you would see Lenin streets change to Lenin streets. John Lennon from the Beatles. They would change oh. Lenin to Lennon, and they and they put a little like a photo of uh, like it, it would be stenciled over, and they'd have a stencil photograph of John Lennon. Uh, so it'd still be Lenin Street, but it would be after John Lennon, not Vladimir. So nice. Yo, Lee, way to correct that. <laughs> okay, Lee, um, can you just talk as we finish up here? You just wrote a really interesting series for Hromatsky. Yeah. Am I saying that right? That's a Hromatsky. Hromatska. Uh, yeah. um, can you talk a little bit about the, because it was a 10 part article yeah. series ten, about ten series, yeah. different eras in Ukrainian film history? Yeah, it was so Discovery people Ukraine learning Ukrainian. People learning Ukrainian. Uh, this is what's well, something I want to go check out the films you've talked about. In these articles but can you just give us some of the highlights from that series yeah i you know uh so i pitched a series to hermanska uh, during quarantine because i knew that a lot of people would be at home and mm-hmm. would uh have time to watch movies that they never had so i put together a series of how to learn ukrainian history through watching films and so it's a 10-part series on essentially from like kievan rus ukraine from the very beginnings you know 1200 years ago to contemporary Ukraine to right now. And there's uh, uh, literally go, go through, there's, there's mostly movies, almost all of them have at least English subtitles. Um, there's a, a handful that don't, but that were included in the series because hopefully they will, somebody will put English subtitles on them at one point in time, but they're worthwhile to watch. But even reading the series, uh, if you're interested in Ukraine, you will learn the very basics of everything you need to know about Ukrainian history by reading the series. Uh, there's a, an entire series uh, on Ukraine during war. So a bunch of films on, uh, on the war. Uh, there's a learn more section in, uh, after each of the, the films. So a place to visit in Ukraine uh, or for the contemporary ones, like where to find out more information. Uh, so you can find out about the MH17. You can find out about the key battles in the war uh, in eastern Ukraine. You can figure out what happened uh, with the annexation of Crimea. Uh, there's a great uh, film on Ukrainian language, actually, that they, they put together. It's called Solovay Spivaya, The Nightingale Sings. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a movie made by Ukraine, an academic look at the Ukrainian language. And it's, uh, it's sort of uh, geared towards specifically targeted towards Russian speaking Ukrainians as to the reason why they speak Russian right now. And it goes through the history of, uh, you know, Russian attempts to minimize, to marginalize or to eliminate the Ukrainian language. Uh, And it essentially shows Russian speaking Ukrainians why they speak Russian. Uh, I want to just get back to the point from the, the, the last time. How, how have things changed in this country since the revolution? Uh, before the revolution, you know, generally, if you spoke Russian, Ukraine, if you spoke Russian, you were pro-Eastern Ukrainian, which means pro-Russian. If uh, you spoke 
Ukrainian, you were pro-Western Ukrainian or pro-European. It wasn't, I mean, these are very... Arbitrary. Uh, arbitrary, yeah. I mean, they're, they're relevant, but they're stereotypes, right? There's mm-hmm. plenty of people in Eastern Ukraine that were pro-European, and there was plenty of people in Western Ukraine that were pro-Russian. So, uh, you know, but it, it's, it's pretty generic. Following the revolution, the biggest change in Ukraine after the revolution, the single biggest change is that the language issue is not anymore the primary political issue. After that, so in Ukraine, there's a, I, I, I did a series for Lviv today on um, uh, this day in Ukrainian history. And I, I wrote one on, I, I can't remember the gentleman's name right now, but it was a guy who was killed because he told people at a bar to stop speaking Russian in Lviv. Like this is how, how fundamentally language is to people out here. You know, I'm Russian and that's the language I speak. You do not tell me what language to speak. I speak Ukrainian. You shouldn't speak Russian. This is, you know, like it is fundamentally the first part of culture. And after the revolution, you saw cities like Lviv that would actively support people speaking Russian which never happened before, or cities like Mykolaiv, which is a Russian, generally a Russian-speaking city, who you would go to like a uh, downstairs at a rougher pub, and they would be singing Ukrainian folk songs, right? And the whole thing is, after the revolution, it changed that it doesn't matter what language you speak as long as you're you're, you're a Ukrainian patriot, and so you can speak Russian, but you still have to be pro-Ukraine, right? And, and it's, it's all changed now. And for me as a Ukrainian speaker that doesn't speak Russian, it's provided me with so many more opportunities because it's like wearing a badge because I speak Ukrainian and I don't, wear, I don't speak Russian. Ukrainians view me as safe. He gets it. He understands Ukraine because he chose to speak this language first, right? And uh, it, it's... It's the biggest change in Ukraine. It's like a nuclear bomb went off in this country and fundamentally shifted the primary political issue that had been that way for 25 years. Uh, so I just wanted to bring that in. I think that that's another point that uh, you want to bring up. So, For sure. Yeah. Marcus, cool. Cody, Russian sometime soon or what? Я говорю по-русски, по-намаечке. So I wanted to give an example. So uh, we're going to talk about Sergic in a second, which is a mix of yeah, like, you Russian. Just, we, we, we don't got much time. Can you just kind of sum up. I'm trying Sergic. to keep it. I'm trying to keep it short here. Yeah. Uh, you know, at the beginning of the thing, I said still pretentive, right? Uh, which is Russian, but it was the way that I learned it from the beginning because it's easy. It's like sto is 100 and Protentive sounds like percent, right? So 100%. It's very easy. I only learned this year, it's actually still vidsotkiv in Ukrainian, right? So I still have that habit of saying this one in Russian. But this is the thing, even like super Ukrainian speakers will still, still speak some Russian mm-hmm. or super Russian speakers will still say some things in Ukrainian. And when you get to the villages, it could be a mix of who knows what. And that's called surzik. And it's yeah. just a mix and one of the things that you, you didn't understand about how language works out here is you will regularly see, especially in Kiev, somebody speaks to a, another person in Russian and that person replies in Ukrainian and then the person replies back in Russian and they have a fluent conversation where neither of them changes the language. 
weird. It's a, it's a really unique, I don't know if there's any country in the world that can say that, that has that type of experience. Yeah, it sounds strange. Yeah, man. Sounds unique. strange. So, it's Lee, a real I have a ability. It's a real ability. Hey. And when once this yeah. country uh, has a couple of generations that are raised with the Ukrainian language in school, and that's their primary language, this country will become bilingual. Uh, or I would expect trilingual because I would expect English to, to actually be there as well. And having a trilingual country or certainly a bilingual country where everybody has, like everybody, we're talking about people that drop out in grade 10, have the ability to speak both languages. It's a, it's a huge, it's a massive uh, resource base and uh, that, that this country can tie into, but they have to protect the Ukrainian language and they'll probably take another two generations, I would expect, so probably another 50 years at least, so... Lee, I was going to ask you a couple final questions. You bet. So first of all, any plans on coming back to Canada or you're staying there forever? No, I, uh, I come back. He comes uh, back I once come a back year. Again. Yeah, I come back once a year. I, I, work, yeah. uh, I work for a political party in Canada, and so I come back and work on elections every year. Oh. Uh, but I work as a foreign journalist out here, so I'm kind of back and forth between Canada and Ukraine. I, I probably spend a little bit more time in Ukraine than Canada, but uh, but no, I, I you know I I don't spend 12 months a year in Ukraine by any stretch of the oh, imagination. Oh, okay. Oh, that's how I thought. Yeah. But no. And where do you go? Yeah. You go back to Saskatoon, or? Uh, usually, because that's home, and you know I like to visit friends. But uh, you know, when you work you go where the jobs are. And so sometimes work for campaigns that are not in Saskatchewan too. So all right. So all over the country then. I, I, I try to stick to Western right. Canada. I'll be honest. Western I, Canada. You know, okay. I'm, I'm Western Canadian. I, I understand that region a little bit more. I've lived in Alberta a few right, times. I live right. in BC. So yeah. Cool. And then my second question was, how are you guys doing with COVID in, in Ukraine right now? Surprisingly good. Surprisingly good. That's uh, what I heard. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the government uh, hasn't done a whole bunch uh, in the last year, but they really did clamp down on, uh, they put us in quarantine earlier than most of the rest of Europe, most of the, most of the rest of the world, in fact. Uh, they, they tried keeping the metro open, that didn't work, so they closed the metro about three days after they started quarantine. This was in March, like it was pretty early. Um, you know, we went through our, we, we tended to get about 500 cases a day in Ukraine. It's not bad. It's a population close to 40 million people. So 500 cases a day is not terrible. Um, you know, the, the problem with COVID is Ukrainians don't have the money to not work and the government doesn't have the money to pay them to stay home. And so the government was forced to op open up because people just didn't have any more time to stay at home. It didn't have any, they, I, I mean, people would have there's people would have had to start stealing things. I'm sure because uh, they just they they were running out of their savings, right? And so we opened up about a month ago, and our COVID cases daily have jumped. They've about doubled, so we're about a, about a thousand cases, new cases a day in Ukraine. But it's been it's been the same since we we opened up. But uh, surprisingly ukrainians of course there's there's people that don't listen to the rules in every country but uh more than you would expect in ukraine people are adhering to the the rules you don't go into businesses without a mask i have not seen problems with that nobody in the metro has a mask in fact i was in the metro for the first time last week and only one person even had the mask below their mouth 
meaning everybody else on the train had their, their mask over their mouth and most of them over their nose as well. So they were wearing their, their mask properly. This is not a country that you would expect this to happen, right? So I've been really impressed with both the government and the citizens' response. So we're doing pretty well in Ukraine. Uh, Europe's not letting us in right now. I mean, I can as a Canadian, but Ukrainian citizens who have visa-free travel to Europe are are still not able to go to Europe, which is a bit frustrating at this point in time because we don't have a high high rate. So there's no real reason to disallow them. But uh, I expect that to change in the next uh, month or so. Cool. Sounds, Sounds good. good. All right. So. All uh, right. <laughs> I got to get going. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but so hey, let's we did finish this a off. solid uh, hour yeah. and 45, maybe? Okay, there's a way I have to end this pod, though. Because right. wearing this shirt, walking around uh, Kiev with, uh, with Lee. So, Lee, I'll say it here, and then we'll tell it what it means in English. So, Slava Ukraini. Herom Slava. Which means? Uh, long live Ukraine, uh, and then long live our heroes. Yeah. Glory to the heroes. So it's something yeah, you hear all the, the time. Heroes. Yeah, something you hear all the time. Yeah, and and uh, I, I I do have a uh, we talk about the alcohol. I have a, oh, yes. a, a little shot of Hryolka here. It's a half shot, but uh, uh, th- th- there's a there's a big phrase in Ukraine. It's a super Ukrainian phrase, uh, and so uh, Ian, I, I, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna do it with you. So the uh, budmo. Budmo. Hey. budmo. No, no, no. You have to say hey. So when I oh, say sorry, budmo, sorry, you sorry. say hey. Gotcha. Budmo. Hey. Budmo. Hey. Budmo, Budmo, Budmo. Hey, hey, hey. Ah, cheers. <laughs> cheers, buddy. Budmo, nice to know you. Le Bleu Ukraina. <laughs> Molodets. Do you know that one? Molodets is like, well done, young lad. You use it for like encore to play. You use it for like a, that was a great goal in a hockey game. Uh, you use it when your kid ties a shoe the first time. It's one of the best words to learn in Ukraine. It's also Russian. Molodets. 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 Yeah. Molodets. And, and it's the same in Russian as Molodets. well. So you can use it for both of them. And it's it's one of the best words you can learn in a language. Molodets. I'll write it down. Molodets. 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 All right. Like Moloko, which is milk, but Molodets. So anyway, <laughs> Budmo. Budmo is Ukrainian. Nazdorovia is Russian, Ukrainian, and Polish. But if you want to be really Ukrainian, you say Budmo. So Budmo. Budmo. And thanks Budmo. for having me. Hey, it was a pleasure, man. Take hey, care. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Lee. Yeah, thanks. Talk to you.